I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell. Brain Science is the podcast where we explore how recent discoveries in neuroscience are helping to unravel the mystery of how our brains make us who we are. This is episode 134. I'm sorry to start today's episode on a sad note by acknowledging the recent death of Dr. Jacques Pangsep. He died on April 18th, 2017 at the age of 73. Dr. Pangsep was almost single-handedly responsible for launching what is now known as Effective Neuroscience, that's spelled A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, Effective Neuroscience. He was a guest on the Brain Science Podcast in 2010, and again in 2013, I think. He also appeared in an episode of Books and Ideas, which is my other podcast, It's no exaggeration to say that over the years, I've had more emails about Dr. Pangsep's work than just about any other guest with the possible exception of Dr. John Rady. Dr. Pangsep's life work focused on compiling evidence for the subcortical origins of emotion. He challenged long-standing assumptions that human emotions are generated by the cortex, but he also argued that all Mammals share several basic emotions, which obviously has implications for how we treat non-humans. I'm going to play his 2010 interview, and then I'll be back to discuss a few of the key ideas and to put them into a more recent perspective. As always, you can find detailed show notes and episode transcripts by going to brainsciencepodcast.com, and you can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Well, my guest today on the Brain Science Podcast is Yach Panksep. Dr. Panksep, I'm going to call you Yach if that's okay. It's great to have you on the show today. Great talking to you, Ginger. I thought we might start out by letting you tell us just a little bit about your background and how you came to spend your career pioneering the field of effective neuroscience. Sure. My uh, tradition goes back to Europe. Uh, I'm one of the war babies, World War II. Uh, I was born in Estonia in the women's clinic at uh, University of Tartu, the second oldest university in Northern Europe, opened by one of Swedish kings in 1642. Just a stone's throw away from Emil Kraepelin's laboratory. He was the father of biological psychiatry. He wrote the first textbook of psychiatry. So I didn't think there would be ever a connection or that I would realize that I came from such a background. But as I went through my education, uh, 
and started in engineering, electrical engineering, and shifted to chemistry. And as an undergraduate at University of Pittsburgh, was struggling to find something that really turned me on. I was working as a night orderly in a back ward of the psychiatric hospital. Things were not as closed in those days as today, where you need privileges to look at other people's charts. I could spend hours and hours reading the charts of people that uh, I was dealing with, putting them to bed and helping them uh, get adjusted in the evening. And became fascinated by human emotions that had gone astray. I decided in my last year as undergraduate, I would major in psychology. I didn't have the prerequisites for medical school, but I wanted to go into clinical psychology and uh, learn more about these people and how to help them and understand them. So I went into the clinical training program at University of Massachusetts, 1965 it was. I had an appointment to the Northampton State Hospital. And I was getting quite dissatisfied with the level of conversation about emotions in clinical psychology. Those were the days of behavioral modification, and people did not talk about the emotions that psychiatric patients go through, or emotions in general were a taboo topic. In one of my rotations in the VA hospital, I ended up in the EEG clinic with Arnie Treehub, and uh, he had an animal laboratory back there. And one day, after I got accustomed to what the unit did for the patients, he said, Yuck, uh, what are you really interested in? And I told him I was fascinated by the recently discovered phenomena of self-stimulation in the brain. And he said, well, uh, why don't you do an experiment? And he let me loose in his lab. And that's how it started. I shifted into behavioral neuroscience, or as it was called, physiological psychology in those days. And I never turned around, but I found that working on emotions was not a popular topic. And I sort of had to prove myself with more traditional things. And that's what I did. And then, as I understand it, once you got your tenure, you started working on what you really were passionate about. Absolutely. I got tenure very early. Uh, my first academic position was up in the Ohio State system at a wonderful campus, Bowling Green State University, northwest Ohio, about 75 miles south of Ann Arbor. I had worked uh, as a student on self-stimulation, on feeding behavior. I did my dissertation on aggression, mapping the brain circuits of aggression. And I did a postdoc in England on energy balance, learning the biochemistry of how animals regulate their weight. And then I had another postdoc back in America in a sleep lab, Peter Morgan at Worcester Foundation. And uh, then I went to my first position and I opened a sleep lab and an energy balance lab. And as soon as I got tenure, I almost dropped that research, uh, finished off a couple of grants and started mapping the emotional brain. That's what tenure is supposed to be for, giving people academic freedom. <laughs> I think that idea has kind of gotten lost in recent years. It's been totally lost. I was fortunate to have laboratories where they gave me total freedom to do what I wanted because they saw me as a motivated guy that could take charge of an experiment, run it, and didn't need any outside help. I was a bench guy through and through. Uh, many scientists these days get their first job and they're no longer bench guys. They're writing grants endlessly. 
And when you do that, you get locked into a certain way of living where your livelihood, your capacity to research depends upon getting funded. If you don't have the funds, you can't do anything. And then students get locked into that pattern. Advisors have to force their students to pretty much follow in their tracks as opposed to giving their students liberty. And I think, in a sense, it poisons the system. Yeah, I was exposed to that early in my career, and it totally turned me off of research. Oh, my, what area was it? Well, the thing was, I didn't even have a chance to find my area. Because, ironically, I got a job. I had a degree in biomedical engineering, a master's, before I went into medical school. And when I got out, Mm -hmm. I got a basically Ph.D.-level job, but I had no funding. And I was supposed to write grants that were supposed to get me funding de novo, which, of course, didn't work because I figured out right away that it's a moving hamster wheel. Yeah. <laughs> that if you haven't already got something funded, you can't get anything funded. And Absolutely. But anyway, let's not get distracted on that. I want to ask you, before we get into the details, I want you to give us just a brief overview of your life's work. Well, after I shifted into emotions, I decided to try to map a system that wasn't on anyone's intellectual map but I knew had to exist because uh, we had been doing behavioral experiments, isolating young animals, and uh, as soon as you separate them from mom, they begin to cry. And John Bowlby, a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, had pretty much uh, built the theoretical scheme of how depression emerges uh, from this kind of a system. He hadn't done any research himself, but he saw that separation response was a very important emotional thing that you could measure concretely, and no one had mapped it out. So uh, we started mapping it with uh, local uh, electrical brain stimulation and uh, trying to figure out what were the main chemistries that controlled it. So in a sense, these were the first experiments in what now people would call social neuroscience, which really emerged from, I think, the concept of affective neuroscience. One of the revolutionaries of social neuroscience, John Cassiope at University of Chicago, was the first person to use my book in a course. And soon after that, he developed the concept of social neuroscience. But losing contact with the roots uh, where it came from, because now that is human brain imaging, whereas my work is still primarily with animals. I've done plenty of human research also. My feeling is that the social brain has many levels. If you don't understand the foundational level, then you can do uh, brain imaging until you're blue in the face, but you still will not understand the process at a deep causal level. And you're talking about the deepest level of the brain. Yes. I think in order to understand the mind, especially the emotional mind, there's no alternative but to take an evolutionary perspective. The only organ we have in the body that is clearly evolutionarily layered is the brain. We can see hallmarks of an ancient heritage right within the structure of the brain. You can't see that in the structure of the heart or the kidneys even though at a genetic level you can track down ancestry. But in the brain, you can actually see those levels 
how many levels, how you conceptualize those levels is a discussion that's hardly been engaged. But my own personal feeling is that there is a very foundational level where mind started, and I would not be surprised if the first glimmers of mind were affective. Maybe you could define what you mean by the word affective. Yeah, well, uh, I chose that word uh, for the coining the term affective neuroscience to highlight that neuroscience has yet to deal with the nature of our positive and negative experiences, the many ways we can feel about things instinctually. Why does sugar taste wonderful on our tongue but not a cat's? We all get cold. I think we humans get cold more rapidly than many other animals that have to live in the wild. But we share all these very ancient feelings that come in many different forms. And for psychiatry, if we don't understand the emotional feelings, we're not going to have a solid science of psychiatry ever. Under the term affective, it really includes emotions, but then other subjective feelings like hunger and thirst? Oh, absolutely. I think affective neuroscience essentially is an umbrella concept for people to try to discuss and investigate what is this mysterious thing called feelings. These feelings come in many different categories, one could say. There are sensory feelings like taste, cold. There are bodily feelings, homeostatic feelings like hunger and thirst. And then the greatest mystery are the internal feelings of the brain, which are emotional feelings, anger, fear, loneliness. Those emotional feelings do not have a clear pathway from the body or the periphery, the external senses. Those can modulate it and trigger things, but the actual feeling emotional state is built into the brain in some way. And your work is really arguing that these emotional feelings are in the ancient parts of the brain that we share with all other mammals and probably some other animals? Well, that's the conclusion that we have reached, and the conclusion is based on data. It's not based on speculation or philosophy. The way you approach emotional systems, you have to first identify their neuroanatomies in some way. If you just do pure neuroanatomy, you cannot ever identify a function for a brain system. You might get glimmers for sensory systems, hearing and touch coming into the brain. But for emotions, really the gateway to understanding was the discovery of Walter Hess in Switzerland back in the 30s that you could stimulate a cat brain with electricity with an indwelling electrode deep in the hypothalamus and the cat would show an anger display, a behavior that every reasonable person would say the cat is just irritated and angry and lashing out. Mm-hmm. Now, Hess decided not to go to this subjected level until near the end of his life when he's long retired and he regretted his decisions, but he did not ask the question, was there a psychological component? He didn't ask that empirically, but that is very askable, and that's one thing we did with the aggression system that he mapped in cats. My PhD dissertation was mapping that system in rats for the first time. And the electrode locations were essentially identical, and they'd been identical in primates and every mammal that's ever been studied. 
But I proceeded to ask the next step and ask, do you like to turn this on if given a choice, or do you prefer to turn it off? And it turned out there were several different kinds of aggression. One was the Hess-type anger display, and every animal that was provoked into that emotional display would voluntarily turn off the electricity if given a choice. Hmm. There's another kind of aggression, predatory aggression. Some people call a quiet biting attack. Whenever you apply that stimulation, the animal was willing to turn it on. We had animals that were not predatory, but they went turn on the brain stimulation and then they attacked in a predatory, quiet biting attack, stalking way of prey species. Hmm. Now we have affect and now we have many other measures of affect, like condition, place, preferences. Will an animal go back to a place where this brain stimulation came on? Will they avoid a place where this brain stimulation came on? So we have good empirical ways to say whether the animal likes it or dislikes it. Right. The big problem is saying that if there are several dislikes and several likes, how do you distinguish them? But maybe we can get to that later. Yes, we will in a few minutes. Before we get into some of the specifics, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the importance of recognizing that if we're studying any kind of brain process, be it consciousness or emotions or whatever, that we have different levels of analysis and we need to keep these straight. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, absolutely. Uh, I think we've had so many controversies across the last couple of centuries on these topics that it's a verbal and conceptual jungle out there. As soon as you recognize that the brain-mind or the mind-brain, I use it as a single word with no hyphen, is an evolutionary layered organ. If you want to understand consciousness, you have to go to the foundational level, and I call that the primary process level. Other people like Andrew Tolbing at University of Toronto has called this anoetic consciousness experience without knowing. The next level would be where these systems connect up with learning about the world, and there's a lot of work at that level, lots of people doing learning. I call it secondary level affect or emotion or consciousness. Tool being called that noetic, knowledge-based consciousness. And then at the highest level, you have all the complex human mental abilities, thoughts, planning, intuitions, creativity, a menagerie of complexities that you can never really study in animals. We don't know whether they even have those. I call it tertiary process consciousness or emotions. Tobin called it autonoetic, which is basically autobiographical memories. You as a person being able to, as a human being, time travel, he said. Moving forward and backward in time, keeping it in memory and seeing what the future holds and how the past influenced you. These are all very important levels. The least amount of work right now, almost no work, is at the primary process level. And I think that's an intellectual tragedy in Anglo-American science. This is the spot where there used to be an ad for Audible.com. I'm grateful that Audible sponsored my work from late 2007 through 2016. You will still find links to Audible in the show notes whenever a book being featured is available. 
But now brain science relies entirely on listeners for financial support. Fortunately, there are three ways you can help support my work. There is a premium subscription for $5 a month, which gets you access to all the back catalog and episode transcripts. Patreon, which allows you to make a monthly commitment of however much you want to contribute. And number three, PayPal, which is popular with people who want to make single donations. It's also possible to send checks. If you want to learn more about how you can support brain science, please go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. I know that a lot of my listeners are aware of the work of people like Antonio Damasio and Joseph Ledoux. And when I was reading your description of these levels, I was struck by the feeling that they're working at different levels from the level that you're working at. Absolutely. I mean, they have done wonderful work. Julie Du operates completely at the secondary process level. He has decided to use our fine behavioral learning tools, classical conditioning in his case. And uh, you have tone shock, tone shock, and rats get scared. After a while, a couple of pairings, the tone itself produces a very scared animal. And he's shown in a wonderful way how this linkage occurs within the amygdala. Now, Joan, I have had controversies across the years. He does not want to accept that animals feel anything. He once said, perhaps they feel pain. And here I am trying to make the case that animals have a rich emotional life which the evidence supports, mm-hmm. but we still have this hangover of Cartesian dualism that we are the complex thinking and conscious creatures and the other creatures are kind of zombies and robots, which is nonsense. But uh, that's the way you had to get funding in the 80s and uh, Ledoux decided to play the game. He has explicitly acknowledged that at meetings. Now, Demasio is a neurologist, so he has to deal with human experiences as they present themselves in the clinic. So he has to operate at tertiary process level, and he's had wonderful theories. I thought that it was too close to a James Lane theory in uh, Descartes' era, 1994 book. I said, oh my goodness, we have to go back to James Lane? That was pretty much disproved a long time ago. For my listeners, will you remind them what that is? Because I think a lot of them don't know. Sure. James Lang basically uh, says that, you know, you are confronted by a life challenge. The bear is the classic example. And you say, I better run out of here. And you run away from the bear and your heart goes pitter-patter and your blood pressure goes up. And you experience these bodily changes later as a feeling. That has been a very popular theory. A lot of people still buy into it. Now, all these peripheral things do control your feelings to some extent, but your feelings do not primarily originate there. They originate in the organization of the brain. I think Demasio has been moving in that direction because he did one of the finest brain imaging studies in humans. You cannot image feelings with fMRI very easily, functional magnetic resonance imaging that everyone's using because it's available, relatively inexpensive. The Maza used the right technique, which was PET scanning, where you can take a slower picture. 
And he asked people to get into four primitive emotional feelings, angry, scared, happy, and sad. And when they were finally in those deep feelings, he injected the radioactive water to see which areas of the brain were active. And of course, I was totally delighted that the old foundations, the primitive areas of the brain lit up. And he acknowledged that it looks like these feelings come from deep in the brain. But he has yet to write a real book on that. His 1999 book was close. That's the feeling of what happens. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. So basically the old James Lang idea, which was a combination of ideas from William James and some guy named Lang, who I don't really remember. A Danish physiologist. Was basically the idea that your emotions came from the body. But your experiments have shown quite convincingly that emotions come from the brain, the lower parts of the brain. Yes, the evidence is overwhelming ever since Hess. Made those angry cats. Yep, angry cats. And you find many other emotional behaviors that you can turn on in animals. Every time you turn on an emotional behavior, the animal tells you it likes it or dislikes it. It's never neutral about it. So they carry the affective message. And we finally made the simplifying assertion that the affect is fundamentally built into this neural complexity that we don't understand. And if you ever want to really understand what affect is, you have to spend time studying those neural circuits very closely. And I am the only one left in America doing that. Mm -hmm. I can't believe what's happening. The money is elsewhere. It's learning memory. Now, Candell, you know, got a Nobel Prize for working out classical conditioning in uh, Plesia Californica, the sea snail. Now he's correcting and refining all that, uh, working uh, some more on rats. But people accepted that with open hearts, that now we understand neural mechanisms of learning. But when it comes to emotions, it seems like everyone responds to that with a very different attitude. Because emotions are something you experience. Memories can be unconscious. Yeah. And we have such great difficulty dealing with this aspect of the brain called experience and give, granting it to animals. Now, of course, we're not some kind of gods that can grant something to animals. We have to follow the evidence as scientists. But the evidence has been there for a very long time. But because of the history of the field, you know, the kind of research that I thought would be the most revolutionary for understanding emotions got smaller and smaller and smaller, largely because of the cognitive revolution and the behaviors that never wanted to talk about experience. Yeah, we might come back to that a little bit later, but I want to get into some more of the evidence because my goal is to get this evidence out there where people will be aware of it especially to my younger listeners who might be the future researchers of the world. Mm -hmm. Great. So let's start out by letting you just give us an overview of what you have called in your writing the Big Seven. Well, you know, I decided that the only way to make a science of this is to drop theory and follow the facts. Because we have so much theory in emotional studies, it'll just make people's heads spin. And most of it is at the tertiary process level. For instance, all philosophers deal up there. Right. But they pretend that that is the final answer, which it is not. So we said, whatever emotional behavior you can turn on, 
by applying electrical stimulation to specific parts of the brain, those are emotional systems because you're putting garbage in. You're not putting neural information in. You're just activating blindly a neural circuit. And if coherence comes out behaviorally, that means that emotional coherence was built into the circuits. As a matter of fact, James, William James of the James Lang theory, he actually had another theory. He said, whenever an animal has an instinctual response, it has a feeling also. So he had a leitmotif type of theory, a minor theory. So how many things can you turn on? Well, you know, it's debatable. You know, it's one close to another and there's only one thing. But in my reading and actual experience of observing animals, there's a seeking urge, animal looking for resources. There's the rage that Hess originally described. There's lust you can turn on animals to display sexual behavior, adult animals. There's a fear system. You stimulate in the central amygdala, medial lateral hypothalamus, in the periaqueductal gray, and you get a very scared-looking animal. Now, this is what people are conditioning like we do. They're conditioning that system, but they don't give the animal a fear system. <laughs> There's care for lust and reproduction. The mother is prepared to take care of the kids. In some species, the father, where the mother has to live on very nutritionally poor food like titty monkeys, so she has to go foraging and pop becomes the main caretaker. So there's a nurturant type of system. We mapped what we call the panic system, which is the separation distress call when little one gets lost from mom or dad, falls out of the nest, goes wandering too early and can't find the way back home. They begin to cry and cry to signal to the parents, find me, take me back. And the last system that we postulated was this play system, which is truly a miracle, I would say. An underused miracle in our educational system and also understudied as a brain process. So these seven I can defend. That's very conservative. No one's challenged me on any of these really, but they have disregarded them fairly prominently in emotion. So what do these circuits have in common in the sense of how you, well, first tell me what they have in common. Well, they have a common aspect of coherence. They seem to be built as instinctual systems in the brain. So once you activate them, the animal acts out an ancient scenario of behavior. Actually, the behavior is called these unconditioned responses. Okay. And just left it there, just left it there. And that's what they condition. When you have a tone and an unconditioned response, the tone develops the capacity to turn on the response, and then they call it a conditioned response. That's what they do. But they don't ask, why do you have an unconditioned response? Exactly. You know, why no one spent a lot of time studying the essential brain mechanisms that allow conditioning to occur is a total puzzle to me. That still desperately needs to be worked out in great detail. So the other thing about these circuits besides the coherent instinctual behavior is that there is a psychological component that we call affect. Whenever you turn on one of these systems, the animal unambiguously tells you it either likes it or dislikes it. Some future scientists will be able to then ask, we could ask this already, but who the hell would fund it, I don't know. Is this feeling different than that feeling? 
we have the techniques to ask these questions, but no one's asking them. And to me, this type of knowledge is the foundation of psychiatry because these are the systems that get so imbalanced and destroy people's lives. Right. And all of the circuits that you've described are subcortical circuits, right? They are. They are. There's no question. And the same locations have to be stimulated across mammals. Are there more? There's some friends with a philosophical bent. They say, well, you forgot about disgust. And I say, no, I haven't forgotten about it. Disgust is sensory emotion that emerges from feelings of nausea and illness. And then it gets symbolized in the social domain of social disgust. So that's a different type of feeling, and it's not all that important for psychiatry, maybe for obsessive-compulsive disorders where, you know, people feel like they've got too much dirt on their hands always and they're continually washing them. That might be a disgust part. The fact that feelings are built into each one of these systems finally allows us to deal with a foundational aspect of consciousness. How do you prove that these systems are being stimulated from the bottom up rather than from the top down? Well, no one can get these types of responses by stimulating higher parts of the brain. And you can do, you know, radical surgery on some laboratory animals, take away the whole top of the brain. You literally take away the whole neocortex. That's not difficult surgery because the animal in a laboratory doesn't need the neocortex to live. You know, that's for a reason and for intelligent responses to the world, complex memories. All right. And a lab doesn't need those. And lo and behold, you cannot tell the difference. Once I had an undergraduate laboratory class on animal behavior and brain, and I had 16 students, and I said, the last experiment you guys are going to do is I'm going to bring two animals into the lab. One of them is missing the whole neocortex, taken away at three days of life, and the mother takes care of them. They grow just like normal, and the other animal will have gotten sham surgery, and your job is to tell me who's who. (laughs) You spend a semester studying animal behavior, and you make your choice in whatever way you wish. When the two-hour lab was finished, 12 of the 16 students had selected the decorticate animal as being the normal one. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect that. That was a statistically significant error. (laughs) Unbelievable. You know, I I did not expect, I expected a coin toss. Right. So when I debriefed the students and we discussed what are you basing your decision on, the bottom line answer was the decorticate animal was more interesting. They were moving around, looking, poking their nose here and there. They were lively. Their emotional systems were disinhibited, and that's what they based their decision on. That an interesting animal must have its full brain. Well, the intact animal was sitting in a corner, kind of scared, acting a little stupid. What this tells us, these emotional systems simply cannot be upstairs. Just to review the way that you isolate them or you first isolate them electrically and then you can simulate them by simulating any place along that same track. That's how you tell that that's one particular circuit. Exactly. And where do the neurotransmitters or chemicals come in? 
Well, they come in uh, as the most valuable way to eventually connect this animal research to human concerns. We have all kinds of psychotropic drugs in psychiatry these days. They do their job the best they can right now. The future is understanding these emotional systems in detail. That was the reason I got into it in the first place. And as I was shifting into affective neuroscience after tenure, the neurochemical revolution was blossoming. The first receptor in the brain had finally been identified in 1972-73, and that was the opiate receptor. And lo and behold, we were starting to map the separation system, and we said, why do people have opiate addiction? It's not just pleasure in some general sense. It's a positive aspect, but maybe, maybe human bonding the loving bond between mother and child is actually an addictive bond. The brain is using these chemistries to reinforce that we stick together as a unit and that facilitates survival. So we tested this simply by asking when you isolate a little animal and they begin to cry, will opiates eliminate the crying the way mommy does? And the answer was unambiguously yes and very powerfully and very sensitively. That was pretty exciting for a lot of people in developmental psychology, et cetera. But then all of a sudden, uh, the rat people got into it. We didn't do this research in rats because rats, as far as I know, don't show a real separation call. Mm -hmm. But rats are so easy to run and so common and everyone started using rats. And they did get opiate control. But the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insull, claim that all it was was a sedation and I think he was probably right that in little tiny rats it's a sedative because they're preemies basically. Mm -hmm. Mother has up to 12 sometimes even you know 16 pups. She only has eight teeth so it's, it's real competition. Those little preemies have a very permeable blood-brain barrier and much lower doses can sedate animals. But we did all our work initially with dogs because we said, here's the species that's perfect for social bonding. We've had a bond for tens of thousands of years, if not longer. Mm -hmm. Then uh, we never could get funding for that. We went to guinea pigs, and guinea pigs are also you know, a very bonded species and couldn't get funding for that. So we went to chickens, <laughs> and chickens are also very bonded, you know, on the mother and the flock, so to speak. And we mapped the separation system in the guinea pig brain and the chicken brain, and the anatomy was similar. And as far as we can tell, the chemistries are similar, but when you look at the chemistries that control the rat vocalization, they're often different. Mm -hmm. So what's the dilemma? Well, you know, the rat, has a call that is not a real separation call. It's a signal to tell the mother that I've rolled out of the nest. They can't get lost, you know, they're preemies. But the mother sometimes going foraging drags them out of the nest because they're latched to the teats. So the mother has to have a signal, bring me back. So that's simply a bring me back rather than I'm a loss signal. And we're trying to prove that right now. And I think the data is in the right direction. I won't go into that, but a lot of people will be displeased. But I think it's what's called Batesian mimicry. 
you know, a monarch or a butterfly that has eye spots on it, that this little sound is actually coming from the sound that we later discovered occurs in play, and we can tickle and produce it. This is just the infantile form of that positive sound, and it attracts the mother's attention, and the mother says something interesting there, goes, I'll say, you're out of the nest, and brings it back. Those vocalizations stop as soon as the animal's old enough to get lost. But then rats don't have separation? Well, we're checking that out if they have a real separation call. Here's what the real separation call does in the little animals that are lost. When they detect that mother is nearby, they start to call louder and more frequently. Right. Okay? Dogs do that. Babies definitely do it. Human babies do it, absolutely. We just had a couple of grad students did a wonderful study on big domestic pigs. Pigs do it. We've got a wild animal that we brought to Washington State University when I came here about four or five years ago. The daegu, a wonderful pet species that has real bonding. They show the same kind of facilitation. We right now are doing that experiment in rats, and we're not seeing that facilitation. So that means that if you were trying to isolate one of these primary effective circuits and you had the bad luck of starting with the wrong species, you might miss one. That means that you really need to look at more than one species when you're trying to figure this kind of stuff out. Absolutely. Uh, If you're taking an evolutionary approach and it's a tool for living that is in the genome, so to speak, we love the word ancestral voices of the genes for these feelings. If it's shared across a lot of animals, you've got great confidence that it must have evolved a very long time ago. But if it's unique to one species, like the little rat separation chirp, then you've got to worry, is there generality to it? And I do believe that every animal has its emotional strengths and weaknesses. You know, some systems are stronger. Surely a rabbit has a stronger fear system than a lion. Big predatory cats probably get enraged more easily than the antelope they chase. So there are always differences, and some people criticize me saying, you know, you're saying it's all the same among the species. I say, no, no, it's a long and complex story, but you have to listen to all aspects of it to really understand it. There are always differences at the biological level, but the principles appear to be the same. Now, when it comes to the separation call, the principles on the rat are different. Okay. We are not going to have time to get into all of these in very much detail, but I really do want to talk about the seeking system because that's one I think that is a good paradigm and also rubs up against some of the more deeply entrenched ideas. Yeah, the seeking system has been uh, a blessing in disguise and a curse explicitly because it's such a radical departure from traditional thinking in the field. People call this system still the brain reward system, which someone developed as a moniker to simplify things. There's no question this system is rewarding, but there are other brain systems that are also rewarding. So we decided that you have to look at the animal's behavior when you stimulate this system, not just lever presses. And when you look at the animal's behavior, Every animal that goes into exploratory mode, looking around, poking its nose in corners, doing interesting things, 
That is what the system actually produces for the animal. That's how it's used in the real world. You cannot have an animal that does not like this subtle feeling. I don't think it's subtle. I think it's intense. It's ecstatic. I'm living. I'm engaged. I want to find what I need, and I can do it. You know, it's that kind of can-do system. And, of course, animals are going to turn that on. But it's not a pleasure system. It's not a traditional reward system. We cannot get this across to people except clinicians. Clinicians love it because they understand that if you can enliven a person's seeking system, then they're on their way to recovery. This is where one kind of depression occurs when this system gets chronically low and you can't get up the energy to do stuff. Life doesn't seem worth living. You don't have that kind of psychic energy. That's one kind of depression. There are other kinds. When you bring this ethological concept, people just glaze over. Isn't it the reward system? Because uh, that's a simple way to look at it. But we know experimentally there are other reward systems. I can get into a very long story about how to distinguish that. This is the granddaddy of the positive systems. All the other positive systems in the brain, such as care, nurturance, lust, sexuality, and play, they use this system as a common substrate. Mm -hmm. That's what it looks like. Where is this system? The system is in this enormous pathway that runs from the midbrain up into the medial frontal cortex through the lateral hypothalamus. So it doesn't go into the thalamus where all your external senses get distributed into the cortex. It is a cross-hypothalamic system. You get it best in the hypothalamus. And the circuit classically is called the medial forebrain bundle. And this is a subcortical circuit, right? It is, yes. But it reaches all the way into the cortex. And one of the transmitters, important transmitters for addiction, dopamine, is a chemistry, but only one of the chemistries of this system that kind of tunes it up. Whenever dopamine becomes active, the whole system becomes active. So dopamine is an orchestral leader. It's like a command transmitter in the system. I was reading about this, and if I understood what you wrote, this system is on while you're seeking something. It turns off when you get to the reward? It diminishes, but it's not necessarily a dopamine part. But, you know, the neurons along the lateral hypothalamus that are part of this system, if you actually record from those neurons, which are not dopaminergic neurons, they become active whenever the animal is going after the stuff they want. And as soon as the animal has it, they stop firing. And quite a while ago, the animal actually had food in its mouth, and it was eating these cells were quiet, and they pulled the food away from the animal's hands, and even though the cheeks were full of food, activity of the neurons came right back. So it's a go-getter system. It's the object in the world that I have to get, and when it's taken away from me, I go after it. So these circuits get aroused by stimuli that predict rewards rather than the rewards? Eventually, initially, they're activated by hunger and your bodily needs. Mm -hmm. 
that's when you have to seek. So everyone knows that a hungry animal just gets more active, and then it has to get connected to the world. The animal doesn't know what it wants. That's the amazing part about this system. If the animal's a laboratory animal like a rat, and it's got all the food and water it needs, and you turn this on, it just starts exploring, and it starts showing strange behaviors. Like one animal might start to just tear up a piece of something, you know, gnaw on a piece of wood. Another animal starts picking up its tail and running around. An animal might start eating its own poop. And so every animal solves the problem of, I've got to do something. I'm so energized. And different animals often produce different behaviors that are completely interchangeable. You play the game uh, asking the question, take away the preferred object and see what they start to uh, do. They pick up another behavior. Hmm. That's been the dilemma that a lot of different behaviors emerge from this common system via individual learning. It's sort of like Tobing said, your autobiographical, autonomic consciousness that is molded by this system, and it can be delusional. So, you know, it helps us understand why schizophrenics have delusions, you know, the false beliefs, uh, because animals develop false beliefs with this system. In the lab with the animals, they will choose to self-stimulate this system? Yes, yes, they love it. They really go for it. And the bizarre thing is, they always show more pressing a lever than they need to. For food, they sort of gauge their press to get all the food they can get. They don't over-respond. All the animals stimulating this system just keep banging away the lever and sometimes press it three times more than they need to get every single reward. Hmm. Is there any way we can study this system in people? Sure. People who take amphetamine and cocaine are turning on this system. You have to ask them, does it feel like pleasure, like you're sucking on a piece of candy? They'll say, no, this feels like I'm really energized and excited and interested about all kinds of stuff. Even really boring stuff <laughs> becomes interesting. We've got plenty of human data, what it produces psychologically. We just haven't used those concepts in the animal, describing the animal feelings. So what's the relationship between this system and learning and memory? Oh, it's uh, very important because this takes you to places where there are resources and you have to learn the way to get there and what signals uh, that resources are located here or there. So this is a general purpose, find it system. And when you find it, then the animal lays down memories related to that. And that's why the earlier stuff I was talking about becomes so interesting. Each animal learning something different when you don't impose anything onto the animal, okay? If you impose, like you make the animal hungry and then you have a signal indicating food is there, this system will help the animal learn that. And that's useful because now the animal knows stuff in the world. Everything about the world, pretty much we learn except how our senses come into our eyes and ears and so forth. 
everything else has to be learned. So this system helps do that, but the same goes for every other emotional system. Every emotional system down in the subcortical areas is a special purpose learning system. The seeking system is simply the broadest. It's for all resources, including safety, finding safety in a dangerous situation. The animal has to seek safety. So, you know, these are, I think, fairly straightforward concepts, but these concepts have never penetrated psychology, neuroscience. And I guess in psychology, one of the problems is this whole learning and memory being totally behavioral that just totally ignores what's happening in the brain. Yeah, well, that's, those days are gone. So. Yeah, but we've had that sort of replaced with this whole idea of the brain's reward system. Yes. You're saying that this approach is really at a deeper level? Well, I think this is uh, probably at the level of uh, evolutionarily determined uh, the creation of these systems. They serve problems in living that every animal has. One of the problems in living is simply finding resources, and you don't build many different systems for different resources. You build one system for looking for resources and then maybe a sensory reward like a pleasant taste for the food system, the coolness and refreshingness of water for the thirst system, bodily warmth for, you know, a thermal regulatory system. So there are many specific rewards, but there's one looking for reward system. So you can call it the seeking system, that makes conceptual sense. It covers all the known facts. As soon as you say the reward system, you put yourself in a conceptual corner. Yeah, one of the problems that I have with that system that's sort of the ruling paradigm that we're being taught right now is that Oh, we were told that you get a good reward in the brain mm -hmm. if what you get is better than what you expected, and if it's less than what you expected, you're disappointed. Mm -hmm. But the hole in it that seems obvious to me is, well, what about when you get exactly what you expect? Like when people do the same thing over and over again, like watching the favorite movie or whatever, and they know exactly what's going to happen, and yet that's a pleasurable activity. It seems like if it was all about having more reward than you expected, that doing anything more than once would be selected against, so to speak. It should be, yeah. But if you have to compete and do it in a hurry, then you might over-respond. Over-response would be built into the system. It's more competitive. Science is very conservative, and bringing new concepts into science is very, very difficult, especially when things have crystallized in certain ways. I had a wonderful postdoctoral student, Brian Knudsen, who's now just got tenure at Stanford, and he's pretty much the granddaddy of neuroeconomics, which is bringing imaging of this system when you're buying things and sort of um, winning big money or new piece of money. Whenever you have an anticipation of getting good stuff, this system becomes active, and Brian can even identify when a person is going to buy something. When this system becomes active, the person will buy it. If another system, the insula, which mediates uh, sensory disgust, becomes active a little bit, the person is not going to buy it.
Now, Brian knows the seeking system concepts in and out because he was in lab. As a matter of fact, he discovered rat chirping in my lab during play, but left for better greener pastures before the tickling started. To this day, I asked him, Brian, why don't you use the seeking concept when you discuss these things? He said, you know, I like to get my papers published. (laughs) If I use such radical concepts, people will not accept these papers. Yeah. And he's probably accurate. Science is very conservative. New ideas often take a long time, and there's a history of good ideas just falling between the cracks. Yeah, your work reminds me of the plight of neuroplasticity, say, 20 years ago, when perfectly good evidence was being discounted because it didn't fit into the prevailing dogma. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, plasticity now is hot, hot, hot epigenesis, and everything is plastic. These emotional systems are plastic, too. You know, people sometimes criticize me and say, how can the genes you know, produce the final product? I say, no, no, we're not saying it's the final product. It's established a system where the final product can be refined by living in the world. And they're always happy qualifications. You can unambiguously say everything in the brain is plastic. Yeah. It's fascinating, you know, so many different forms of plasticity. Is emotional plasticity different than memory plasticity? No one's asking those questions. That's because they're locked into their grants. Well, there's so much other stuff I could ask you about, but I think we're just about out of time. Okay. Is there anything really that you think is important that I've left out that you'd like to mention? Well, I think the general principle is that for deeply emotional creatures, all mammals, it goes further than that that we as a civilized society have to come to terms with our animal nature that will give us a philosophy of life where the lives of other animals will be improved and the human lives will be improved. Ultimately, the quality of our life is affective. If our affective systems become imbalanced, we have these things called psychiatric problems and disorders and There will be new and very specific medicines once we understand these systems. We have medicines that probably would be better for depression right now than the ones that are being sold. So in a sense, we have to open up the doorway to intellectual honesty at all levels of our society, and that's a big job. Well, if you were starting out right now and assuming that funding was not a problem, what question would you want to pursue? Oh, I uh, there's one question I've always wanted to pursue, which would have been the ancestry of how these emotional systems work between animals. Each animal is either resonating with another animal's emotional system, the positive social emotions, or they're activating other emotions, fear and anger between animals that might be competing. I proposed in the 80s that there were resonances between emotional systems when you feel sad and I see your sadness. I understand where you are because my emotional system gets activated. Mm-hmm. Right now, the mirror neurons are hot, hot, hot. But I think they are making the story even hotter by using that concept that the emotion is what's being communicated between individuals. You know, those mirror neurons in the cortex are not communicating emotional feelings. 
the mirroring of feeling is, I think, operating at a more primitive level, and those questions could be asked. That requires big bucks to do it. Yeah. There is not a single person in the world working on that topic. Wow. That's what I would work on if I had plenty of money, plenty of young, spirited investigators, students that just want to explore the nature of the world, the mental world, the brain world. They're very doable projects now because we know where the location of the systems are and we know some of the chemistries. So it's a wide open ball game. I don't think that anyone will do those experiments in my lifetime. I will not. What advice do you have for young people that are interested in getting into this field? Take courses from the most interesting and engaged professors. Get turned on and recognize that your education is totally your responsibility. There's only people around you to inspire you. And then you take that inspiration that's inside and you kind of try to find a place where you can do the kind of work that you want to do. And it's harder and harder to find these places because everything is grant-driven and you become a kind of a surf to the system. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way to change that because it's, it's so important and it requires so much hard, time-consuming work. But I would also tell any young person that once you're inspired, be ready to commit yourself to some of the most difficult work that one can do. Difficult because not only do you have to keep so many skills tuned up, but it's repetitive over and over doing the same thing. So you have to have a very profound work ethic. You have to be like a bricklayer. You have to be willing to build a cathedral and a cathedral that's not finished in your lifetime, but that you have established a certain beautiful perspective on things that other people are tempted to follow. So when I say that, I wonder how come only my own students are following me. But you've got plenty of stuff there in the literature, and maybe it won't be appreciated. I hope it'll be more appreciated in your lifetime, but you've got it out there for the future. Well, uh, there's quite a bit of appreciation, especially among psychiatrists and people that need this kind of evidence, this kind of knowledge, psychotherapists, that whole community of people that deal with human problems finds this to be on the right track. It's just within the neuroscience community that it needs cultivation. The bottom line is that when scientists stop talking about ideas, intellectual tragedies happen. The conversation about these issues has to be opened up, and I'm delighted that you're opening up the conversation a bit. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. I know that this is going to be very interesting material to everybody, and I'm going to try to get as many of the papers that are available online. I will link to them as well as to your book. Wonderful. I appreciate uh, having had a chance to talk to you. So that's great. Thanks a lot. You bet. It was an honor to have interviewed Dr. Jacques Panksepp on three different occasions, and it was gratifying to see his work get more recognition during the last few years. I do want to review a few key ideas. Dr. Panksepp's main message was quite straightforward. 
Based on his decades of work with a wide variety of animals, he felt that he had isolated at least seven subcortical circuits that he called origins of affective experience. His conclusion was that emotional experience originates in the subcortical parts of the brain that evolved before humans and even before primates. According to Dr. Pangsep, other animals may not be able to analyze their emotions the way we do, but there is no doubt that they have feelings. His evidence is also quite straightforward. When these circuits are stimulated, animals show predictable, reproducible behavior. When given a choice, they will choose self-stimulation or avoidance, depending on whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant. When people have these same areas stimulated, they're usually able to describe their emotions in the way that you would expect. The other half of the evidence seems equally compelling. Most of you know that various motor and sensory experiences can be elicited by stimulating the cortex or the surface of the brain. This is often done prior to neurosurgery. However, one does not get pure affective or emotional experiences by stimulating the cortex. In fact, as Dr. Panksepp mentioned, an animal without a cortex still appears to have emotions. And Dr. Antonio Damasio has documented the case of a um, human without a cortex appearing to have some affective reality. Now, next month, I'm hoping to interview Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, whose new book, How Emotions Are Made, actually challenges several of Dr. Pangsep's conclusions. To make sure that you don't miss that interview, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter at brainsciencepodcast.com. Once you're subscribed, you will automatically get episode show notes whenever a new show is released. At the website, you'll also find a complete list of previous episodes, links to our social media sites, and lots of other resources, including episode transcripts. Now, before I start my closing announcements, I want to thank everyone who has continued to support me and brain science over the last two years since my husband's unexpected death in July of 2015. I've recently moved into a new home, and while things haven't completely settled down, I'm finally able to return to a monthly schedule. And as I mentioned before, next month's episode will be an interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett. I'm also planning to attend the Society for Neuroscience meeting in Washington, D.C. this November. So if you're planning to attend or you'll be in the area, please drop me an email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Finally, as I mentioned during the last episode, I am tentatively starting to plan for a trip to Australia in 2018. So I would like uh, feedback and suggestions about this, especially from Australian listeners. I mentioned ways to support the show earlier, but I need to take a moment to explain why your support is so important. I know that many of you assume that because I am a physician, that I make lots of money. Unfortunately, there are several reasons why this isn't true. First, I took a big pay cut to go from emergency medicine to palliative medicine. 
which was something I could afford to do while my husband was alive. After he died, I found myself spending my savings to make ends meet. So last fall, around the time brain science returned from its hiatus, I also took a second job as a medical director for a hospice. The only problem with that was that I was really starting to get burned out. The hospice job ended unexpectedly, so I am faced with a choice. Look for another job or focus on podcasting as a source of income. And that's what I want to do. That second choice, I want to redouble my efforts on both brain science and other podcasting projects. But here's my dilemma. I want new episodes of brain science to remain free. So I need each of you to ask yourself, what is this show worth to you? And if you can afford to support my work, I hope you will. Just go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations and pick the option that works best for you. Now, I can't promise that there's never going to be any more ads on the show, but I will promise you that if I get advertising in the future, premium subscribers will have access to ad-free versions of new episodes. Ironically, every month I get several emails from people who are apologizing because they can't afford to support the show. And I really don't want anyone to feel guilty because you can always support my work by sharing it with others. But if you can't afford $5 a month, I want you to know that every little bit helps. My goal is to continue podcasting even after I retire from medicine. But right now I'm just trying to break even. I really hate asking for money, but I want you to know what my situation really is. And for those of you who have continued to support my work, even when the show was on its long six-month hiatus, I want to thank you again. I'm excited about my new commitment to this work, and I appreciate hearing from listeners. So please don't forget to email me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or visit the website at brainsciencepodcast.com. Brain Science is copyright 2017 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You may copy this to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com.